So welcome back, part four of The Clever and the Simple Son. Tonight we're going to explore the, I guess maybe the, the end of the first part of the narrative. And having just finished Purim, where the rabbis point out that Esther was really quite adamant that her story be written down. Write my story down so, I can, so it can last for all time. Which, as Rabbi Nachman really says, the whole of our, every story of our life is Torah. I mean, there's meaning in everything that we go through. And that's a fundamental understanding of um, this philosophy. There's nothing just random. Every experience is preordained by Hashem out of love for our benefit. Nothing is extraneous. And in the same way that in Torah, this is my understanding, every phrase, every nuance is analyzed for being an unnecessary letter or an un a rep repeated phrase, then... When we tell the stories of our lives, which Rabbi Nachman is doing in this particular story, everything he tells us is important. Every phrase that he, he, he writes, and there's nothing that's, that's redundant. So we spoke at the end of the first part of the story how he went and travelled home. This wise son you know, wants to go home, wants to tell the world what he's become since he, since he left home and suffered greatly along the way since because of, all his, because of his intellect, he had no one with whom to talk. Because everybody was beneath him. He couldn't find lodgings according to his taste because he had risen so high in his own high society needs and wants. And he had much suffering, which is fascinating because the poor guy has no suffering. For the simple poor guy, the simple one, he's happy at everything. He does everything with, he thinks it out, he turns to Hashem, he's satisfied with what he has. So it says Rabbi Shalom Arish as follows Rabbi Nachman tells us the clever one's suffering was the result of what? Of his intellect. So, again, it's taking everything we perceive to be really important in life. Wisdom, intellect, ability. And so, well, actually, at times, all these blessings could be a curse if they're not used in the way that they need to be used. Nothing and no one pleased him. He was never satisfied and he only found shortcomings in everyone and in everything. The fanciest luxury hotel wasn't even acceptable to him. And so he says, the arrogant are always angry with any tiny detail in life that fails to meet their, expert, their, their approval. Even when served the finest gourmet meal, they'll find fault with the china, the cutlery or the centerpiece. They'll regard any chef or maitre d' as a bungling idiot. If they do somehow approve of the staff, they'll criticize the furniture. And we probably know people like that who just can't quite get to see beyond what's really quite good. And they're just moaning about everything. And that comes from a place of arrogance and it comes from a place which we get to see a lot in Rabbi Nachman's writings, especially the way Rav Shalom Arush really interprets them, is not appreciate or failing to appreciate that everything in our lives is personally supervised by Hashem down to the smallest level. And there's nothing that's not good and not right for us. Even when we emotionally, because I think it's probably an emotional reaction more than an intellectual one, fail to connect with that concept. No, we play that it's not fair game. It, why do I? Why no? Why they? And the truth is, first of all, the why the they is a stupid game because no one has a clue what's going on in anyone else's life. Now, I remember hearing some time ago. Where would we hear this? I can't remember. It wasn't here in London that there are people in London, some of the more prominent rows and gold or screen that have very nice looking houses on the outside, lots of very you know, snazzy looking cars in the driveway with no petrol in them and absolutely no food inside the house because they've actually haven't got the fortune that the outside of the house might suggest. And if you don't know them then you'll assume that you know, you're living in your whatever you're living in. And, think, so, and it's not, so we don't, so the, the why they game is obviously redundant. And the other side is more of an emotional experience. It's not fair. 
that's more emotional than intellectual. And remember, we've, we've said every single time, and I really feel this, and I'm trying so hard to, to bring these teachings into my personality, into the way that I teach and try and do it. I, I think that these teachings, more than being like, as we've said every week, unlike a halacha shir, where you go away with knowing what to do, this is a conversation that we have, and that we go away and think, how does this apply to me? How can I absorb these ideas into my life? And to me, I'm feeling very much that it's, it's obligating. Obviously, these teachings obligate to do something with them. You can't just learn this, this philosophy of everything's from Hashem, everything's for the good, and there's a reason for this, and then go away and live our normal lives. And that's no point. This sort of demands that we respond in action to the way we're gonna, we're gonna, things we're going to learn tonight. The clever one's arrogance has rendered him devoid of Emunah. Now, Emunah, for a, again, Emunah, what's the formula? Hashem is in control of absolutely everything, and everything that happens is for the best. If he had a Munna, he would have been satisfied with whatever Hashem gave him at that moment, knowing that Hashem does everything for the very best. With a Munna, we save ourselves untold anguish. And I really want to, I, I, I think we have, we have to know this and feel this and then work really hard on ourselves to do Because if you've got a formula, someone's got very, very popular tonight. Okay, it's fine. It's nice to know the phone's ringing. It's good to know that I'm sitting here with people who are so popular that people want you, even the shit. No, it's nice to know. To see with a bunch of losers but no one's got any friends, that's really depressing. So it's good to know I'm in popular company. Now, if you think, if there's a formula, and the formula is, Amuna can, can save you from suffering, or you can have suffering, well, to me, it's a no-brainer what side to try and be on. Even though it's, it's an avoda, it's really hard. It's harder than cleaning for Pesach. To, to, to take the, because it, these teachings need to be introduced when we're kids. At the conversation. So this author, this Rav Shalom Arish, has a siddha. I'm going to tell you what we did on Shabbos. I'm going to pause. Mm -hmm. saying, Rav Shalom Arish has this beautiful... <coughs> um, he brought out a siddha with his explanation. So at the moment, I don't know if it's in English, but it's in the Hebrew um, explanation. It's very, very beautiful. And I noticed on Friday night that he's got a, a beautiful prayer that he composed to, to be said after Kiddush, both at night time and during the day. And it starts with the words, Todah Thank you. And it's really, to me, it, it resonates. It's so beautiful to take a moment, both night and day. And before you go and eat, he said like, Todah Al-Habayit, for the house. For the shulchan, for the table, for the chairs, for the Shabbos table, for the food. Then he made me laugh because <laughs> for the chashmal, for the electricity. I'm thinking, <laughs> <laughs> for Ovo, leaving me alone, maybe if I paid the bill one time. And then he did his sort of brackets for the muzgan, for the central heating. And for like, and it's such a beautiful, and I, I want to, please God, we'll try it this, this, this Shabbos. And sort of introduce it into our repertoire, the Shabbos table. It doesn't need to be like a long gap between Kiddush and making hamotzi. But just before you, you know, partake, to take that moment to recognize that what you've got is, with Emunah, is from Hashem, wants you to have what you've got. And if you haven't got, no, I hope I'm not insulting anybody, I haven't got meat and chicken for a Friday, which some people seem to think is an obligation. I'm just happy to have chicken. I don't have two lots of meat, or, you know, foie gras, or whatever you're going to have at your meal, or <laughs> champagne, whatever it is. That whatever you've got at the table is what you've got at the table, and that's perfect for you. And therefore, Todaraba, thank you for what I have as being, this is what our family needs. And we don't need any more to experience Shabbat. It's not, it's not, and wishing more is, is unnecessary. 
But it's, it, it's all part of trying to take this concept of emuna, of really understanding that everything's for the best from Hashem, and expressing that in a practical way. Because if you can say, I guess if you can say thank you for something, then you believe you've received it. When you can't thank your situation, it's because you're angry at your situation. You can't bring yourself to appreciate what you have. So then you've got you've got anger. And that anger is going to be ultimately towards Hashem because he hasn't blessed you with whatever you think you need. So he says with anger, with emunah, we can, we can save ourselves from untold anguish. We know that Hashem has a reason for everything. Even if something is not our liking, you can reconcile ourselves to the fact that it's what Hashem wants us to have. And then Rabbi Nachman does something else in the story. And this is such a fascinating line. And it really gets into thinking about the stories we tell of our own lives. What sentences would we skip over? Rabbi Nachman writes at one point, Now let us leave the story of the clever one for the time being, and we will start to tell the story of the simple one. And that's not just in nothing in, the, in his writings are just throwaway sentences. Everything has a reason. Instead of Arish, before Rabbi Nachman tells us about the simple one, he wants us to leave the story of the clever one. In other words, put what the clever one represents, logic. It's logical to study gold because it's a good thing to work. Then it's logical to study diamond cutting and it's logical to do Latin to become a doctor. It's all about logic and, being, and thinking. And we need to actually put that aside in order to learn tr the true wisdom of the simple one because the tools that the clever one used to try and make his way through life thinking that he could improve a situation and make his life happy which was separate from Hashem because he thought he could do it all himself that way of thinking needs to be completely paused in order for us to read to connect with the hero of our story the simple one and we haven't got to the end of the story yet but it's a big non sequitur we're going to use a posh phrase now you wouldn't have guessed from the beginning where the end is going to go it takes it in a very in a very fascinating direction. And actually, Rabbi Nachman writes that before they received the Torah, this is a thematically relevant building up to Pesach. Before we received the Torah, the Israelites in Egypt were highly intelligent people with an investigative nature. But, and I've never heard this reflection about people before, we thought we're slaves, so where's their space for the intellect? Rabbi Nachman says somewhere along the line, there's teachings that we were that we had an intellect. But, he says, Influenced by the Egyptians, they had become idolaters. Had they not cast their logic and intellect aside, they couldn't have received the Torah. Which maybe that's the magic of Nasev and Ishma. We will do and we will learn. Is I'm just going to do what God wants. I'm going to recognize this is for the good. And if I start applying my own logic, then I'm going to just get a little bit lost. As opposed to the clever one, who attained everything readily and with ease, the simple one really struggled in everything he did. Compared to the clever one, the simple one had so had what appears to be a dreadful existence. So which one of the two should be happy? We should answer the clever one. He's got the skills and the talents and everyone admires him. What can you expect from a simple person who can't do anything properly? Wouldn't we expect him to see him depressed and broken? So this next lesson is we can all be happy. This is what the story wants us to understand. Says Rabbi Nachman, he was habitually very happy all the time and he was only filled with happiness always i mean that's something this book is for you by the way you. okay i mean this is what we want i mean most people like to be happy, genuinely happy not superficially happy or happy at the wrong things but genuinely happy Rabbi Nachman teaches us that anyone can be happy you know it doesn't but you have to say how to achieve it so it doesn't depend on external factors but on 
emunah again. Everything comes back to emunah. The Hashem does everything for the very best. It doesn't matter what a person's qualifications or lack of them. If they are happy with their lot in life, then you're always going to be happy. As such, Rabbi Nachman shows us that the simple shoemaker with all the drawbacks and difficulties is filled with happiness. And he's goading us to think of this shoemaker with his one item of clothing and with his bread that tastes like anything he wanted to. And you can sort of imagine now, you know, we all learn as kids that the, the manna in the desert that fell tasted of whatever you wanted. But no one ever thinks to ask, hello, they were slaves. What, why are they eating in life? Everyone sort of imagines, oh, lots of flavors of ice cream and pizza. And, but hello, what are they eating? <laughs> They've been in Egypt having matzah. They had cucumbers, onions, fish. They haven't had that sort of range of foods that could be too exciting. But maybe the rabbis are suggesting that it wasn't like this simple guy in the story, that he was happy with what he had. So it was the equivalent of having eaten steak when he had a piece of bread. And when he was drinking his water, it was the equivalent of whatever wine would make us happy. He managed to find that happiness in what he was doing. Maybe the Israelites, had that, that, that was what, it, what they were really saying in, in the Medrash, that they had the potential to not necessarily taste it as such, because that would require an experience of the taste and knowledge of the different things, but they, they appreciated what it was an appreciation and therefore a happiness which sustained, in the, in the Torah story, most of the nation until the grumbling ones started grumbling and it went downhill. But they were always the small clique rather than the entire nation. Rabbi Nachman teaches that for a person who knows everything that happens to him is for his ultimate benefit. Life in this world is tantamount to paradise. I think we can all agree the truth of that statement. How we make that part of our lives is a whole different game that, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, I don't know, I mean, I, I, you know, if you have the rabbi that knows the halakha off by heart and teaches you, then he's the expert and then everyone else is learning. This is a, you know, this is something we don't have to, we can, we've said this before, you can daven for it. When you're davening, you can daven to have a munna. you can, no, Hashem, help me understand that everything that happens is for my benefit and let me experience that. And then you don't have to say because I want to experience paradise. But, but just to understand that concept, then you will experience because nothing that's going to nothing that's going to phase you, nothing that's going to fr you know, frazzle you. The clever one can never be happy because he doesn't believe that Hashem determines what he wants. He and then we saw last time he was making every decision, and that's where that was his downfall. He didn't turn to Hashem. Really, everything is in Hashem's hands. Our only choice is to strengthen our emuna and be happy. Or to fool ourselves into thinking that we run the show, and therefore the uh, is either it's misery. So this is this is the the, the, the conundrum that Rabbi Shalom Arish and Rabbi Nachman's teachings are, are, suggesting, are suggesting to us: live the life that everything's from Hashem, and it's for our benefit, and it's good, and feel the happiness, or think we're in control and struggle with that concept. Now let's look at this simple one's food. The simple one was completely satisfied with whatever Hashem gave him to eat or drink. Even if he only had dry bread and water, he never felt he lacked anything. He believed with complete emunah that Hashem instilled all the sustenance he needs within that slice of bread. He knew that if this was what Hashem gave him, then it has to be the best for him, containing what he actually needed to get his job done on earth. So that's another line there. We say in our davening in the morning, there's morning brachas, you God have made me everything I need to be me. Now, there are times in the morning where I think that one line or one phrase could take you half an hour, not to read the words, but to, to, to synchronize heart, mind, brain with that phrase. If you got up in the morning and thought about that, 
then jealousy goes away, frustrations go away, everything goes away. Because I, I, I need to be me, not, not somebody else. And some of these lines are so magical. There's something, but they're in the morning, and the morning's a really bad time for... And then we think, well, if they're in Mincha, no, Mincha's also a bad time, because it's the middle of the day, or it's towards the end of the day, and I've been at work, and I'm tired, I've got to... Then marry, oh, I'm so tired. And when is a good time? <laughs> like, it's tricky to think, you know, if you try to push things off, the whole day is potentially just, you know, gets in the way of these thoughts. But if you have a moment, sometime, and not to pressure, even maybe just, you know, if you're walking somewhere, just to not to say the bracha, but to think it over in your head. Yeah, I said it this morning, or I, I know it's in the sit and I could say it. Everything you give me to be the best me, so stop looking at everybody else, because that's not me, that's them. And then just go, everyone butt out my life. Takes neighborhood watch and stop, stop watching my life, and stop watching everyone else's life. And it's, that's what we need to, all of us, you know, I think we would be so much happier when that happens. You see someone, you know, you, you know how, how awkward do we feel when we don't quite have the right clothes or the right look? Well, we see somebody else walking into shawl and they may, may not be dressed in the way that makes sense. Or they're just a bit strange. Strange. But then maybe that's what Hashem gave them. And they're just doing, you know, it's just, that's what they've got. That's their life. That's their... There's a guy in school, a supply teacher. So I saw him on Purim with a kippah in his head. And I thought, oh, that's so cute. He wanted to show that he's dressing up as a Jewish person. And now he wears a kippah every day. I think he's Jewish. The physics, a supply teacher for physics. I think he's a very, very, very sweet fellow. He thinks he's Jewish. Yeah, yeah. And apparently he started wearing a cap on and he enjoyed it on his head. Oh. And he decided to keep it on. Yeah. He thinks he's Jewish. He thinks he's Jewish, yes. But he's not sure. He's not sure, but he likes wearing the cap But he only starts to wear it at Purim. Yeah. I never saw it. The guy who just started teaching me how to get vacancy, and I didn't say. He teaches on the third floor. Baruch Hashem, I don't have to walk up three flights of stairs. They put us on the second floor. They know we're fat rabbis, so we know where we can get up to the top floor. You can't breathe on the third floor. The, see, the kids are like, <gasps> and it takes a while to regain your like oxygen. It's really awful. It's like seventy odd stairs. It's a nightmare. It's like worse than going to the gym. Um, so I hadn't seen this fellow, but it's like maybe it's a Jew. I'll go and schmooze with him. Find I think him. He, I think he, Abraham says he is. He thinks he is Jewish. Somewhere along the line, but he's, he's never kept anything. Never practiced anything. Put his cap on his head and liked wearing it. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's, he's just wearing it. <laughs> But like, whatever. Hashem gave no projects. Hashem gave him you no know, his experience that brought him into the Jewish yeah. Jewish. You no, know, some someone had to leave our school, had a gap, and then this guy who may be able to try. I mean, when, when, you, when you look sometimes, you see, yeah, like, there's no logic where he should, and his his look and he's, he's so out of kilter with all the other teachers that work in the department. But what a sweet fellow, and he's made his way maybe back to the tribe. Who knows? Who knows? Sometimes it's easier seeing that someone else's life story rather than our own life story. But Rabbi, Nach- Rabbi Natan alludes to the above concepts and writes that a person is able to taste anything he imagines within a slice of bread. We see that simple people often relish their unrefined dark bread. Remember this going back to, the, to Ukraine 200 years ago. So. And, well, and well water more than the aristocrats take pleasure in the finest delicacies. In that way, those simple people are on a higher spiritual level than the, than the posh people. The people of Israel who learn Torah and holiness can taste any flavor in bread and water if they suffice with bread and water. It could be the nicest thing in the world. You know, any kid that's really thirsty, you give them some water on a very hot day, they'll be like, oh, this is amazing. But they've got, you've got a bottle of Coke or some water, they'll go for the Coke, all things being equal. So it's true, you know, when we need to feel that and like, thank you, I'm so, so glad I've got it, then it's quite simple to experience that thing.
Now, the first week there was a clash with, well, why should the intellectual one satisfy himself with something much less than he should, should do? And what's with this, what's with this simple one? So Rabbi Shalom Arash writes a very beautiful paragraph. says, please, dear reader, if you're enchanted by the simple one's character, I think we're quite enchanted, it's quite cute, how he imagined simplicity and perfection and he was just happy and so maybe there's a little bit of jealousy, like how did he get there? And he wasn't, he wasn't an idiot, he just took a little bit longer to learn. He wasn't simple in terms of not understanding, not being able to make sense, he just needed a bit longer. And you'd like to live a life of emuna and emotional independence. Don't run to change into a pair of torn jeans and a ragged sweatshirt. Now, being simple doesn't mean you're, 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 you're some schmatter-wearing person. One of the principles of simplicity, remember Satan Night coming up, the, the simple son? Now, all the Haggadahs with drawings paint him out to be a goofy sort of schmarrel. But this is a simple person. And he's on a very high spiritual level. You know, you need to think about you've got the wise kid, the wicked kid, the one who doesn't know anything to ask. And then the tongue doesn't have to be. There is another text that calls him a tipesh. Then he is stupid. But if you're using the word tongue, which is simple, and this is a simple one over here, on a much higher spiritual level, maybe on par with the wise son. You know, it transforms those four sons into a very different set of boys. It's one of the principles of simplicity. We shouldn't try to stick out of the crowd. So you don't know you're not dressing in a way that makes you look weird. Oh, I'm simple. You know, you can still that's not that's almost that's being that's almost against it. A person with simple emuna and emotional independence doesn't need to dress or act eccentrically so that others will take notice of him. Again, he cares what Hashem thinks of him and not what others think of him. Here's a little bit of a, a parable. Hashem wants you to be modest because you're the daughter. So, so what if, oh, sorry, I missed a bit out. A person who dresses in traditional Orthodox Jewish manner should not be ashamed of his appearance when he must be in a non-religious or non-Jewish area. Sometimes it's quite fun going into a non-Jewish school and you're occupying your sits is flying and they're looking at your waist and you know they're looking at your waist and they, they want to talk to you and they're not quite sure what to do or how to speak. A newly observant person shouldn't be ashamed to put on a kippah in public or should a newly observant woman be ashamed to cover her hair and dress modestly, whatever it might be. So what if the other women laugh? Hashem wants you to be modest because that's what he wants. Shimon was one of Rabbi Natan's closest students. He was accustomed to attend every surdat shlishit, the third meal on Shabbat, as a guest of Rabbi Natan's table. Shimon's father bitterly objected to his son's association with, with Rabbi Natan. Rabbi Natan was Rabbi Nachman of Breslov's main student. Yet Shimon would somehow sneak away from his father on Shabbos and go to the Rebbe for the third meal. One Shabbos, Shimon's father looked, sorry, locked him in his room and took away his clothes so he couldn't escape through the window which had no locks. The hour of the third meal was approaching and the lad yearned to be by his teacher and spiritual guide. He looked in his closet but found nothing other than the old tattered clothes of a Ukrainian peasant that his father had taken as collateral for a loan. Without hesitating, Shimon put on the peasant clothes and jumped out of the window, making a beeline to the Rebbe's shawl. He arrived just when the Rebbe started to present his weekly speech. When the Hasidim gathered around the Rebbe, around, sorry, Rebbe Natan's, around the table, he saw 
Shimon burst into the door, dressed like a local peasant, and they all burst out laughing. Rabbi Natan was totally serious. He gazed at his pupil and nodded. He wasn't amused. All he saw was the lad's dedication to Torah and to his Rebbe. Someday, Rabbi Natan said, I shall do an eternal favor for you in return for your dedication. So the contrast between this wise person and the, and, and the simple one. The clever one found fault in absolutely everything and everyone. The simple one only saw perfection in things. What seemed to be disgusting was perfect for him. Since the simple one had complete faith, he accepted his lot in life and saw the good in everything. All that he tasted was sweet and delicious. In his mind, even the dry, coarse bread was gorgeous. On the other hand, nothing made the, other, the, the clever one happy. So life gives us two options. Option number one, like a quiz show. A person is free to live a life of a munna, believing that everything Hashem does is for the ultimate benefit and for the very best. Consequence, he's happy with what he has and with every single minute of life in particular because it's all for the best. Option number two, you can refuse to believe that your life is an outcome of what Hashem wants. You doubt that things come from Hashem. You doubt that it's for the very, it's for the very best. You can believe that he alone determines your own fate. You blame yourself for the mistakes. Then you get anxious, you get sad, you get depressed, never satisfied. And if that person does experience a bit of success, then the ego becomes overinflated, only to be deflated when the next time things go wrong. Because if you are the cause of your own success, then, the, then at that moment, it's all the mindset philosophy. You have the mindset of being, I'm brilliant. And then when you fail, you define yourself by the failure. By the way, studies have shown that people, kids at four years old, already have an idea of their, of, them, of their identity of being successful or failure. They did studies with a four-year-old with puzzles. So I saw this in, in Carol Dweck's book. She said it took four-year-olds and gave them a, a puzzle that four-year-olds can do. They're big, chunky pieces, put them together. And the kids all managed to do it because it's age-appropriate. They all felt very good about themselves. She then offered them, would you like to do a harder puzzle? Some of the kids said no, and some said yes. The ones that said no didn't want to fail because they liked riding on. And it's shocker, at four years old, we're already make, sort of judging ourselves to be successful, success in life or failures in life because we, we will or will not you know, try to do a puzzle. The ones that did it, you know, some were able to say, well, at least I tried to do something harder. And that's the growth mindset. And then the fixed ones felt that they were stupid and I hate puzzles, never going to do a puzzle again, throw it on the floor because there's the, there's the evidence of my stupidity in front of me, whereas the smug ones who didn't go on ahead, they're still happy because, but they're actually limited in their capacity. So these choices that we have, and if we remind ourselves again, when we're in a situation, and life throws those, those up every other second, you know, there's two choices all the time. Do I want to feel it from Hashem? Now again, this simple one isn't plagued by the arrogance of the wise one who thinks he understands everything. So the simplicity here is I'm going to accept it and I'm not going to probe into why it makes sense for me because then I'm being like the wise one and then it all goes wrong for me. Now, we need to, now how do we do that? The simple one didn't fool himself about his station in life. He was aware that he was the simple one. He owned it, like the kids in the puzzle. Owned it. He knew that he lacked high IQ and he lacked dexterity because he couldn't cut the material to make a nice rounded shoe. He knew that he was slow. And that is so far, so much further than modern than where we are today, where everyone has to hide everything and no one's believing anything. And you've got to, everyone has to be the best and no one can just accept that they are 
they need a bit longer and it's, it's hard for people and I see it in school all the time they don't want to quite accept where they are it takes a conversation to open that car to open that up I had a young girl on on Friday literally every three seconds she was talking in class not because she didn't want to learn every it was met by I'm sorry and a nice smile and feeling really like contrite that she so kept stopping the lesson I gave her a few minutes to go outside to see if that would make a difference you could said I want you to stay back at break time and I'm, in her mind she was like oh here we go here we go again I'm gonna get yelled at I'm gonna get I'm gonna get I just asked her a simple question do you struggle with this like a lot in school and she said yes like I said it's school and I said to her I just assumed the next response and it actually helped I said is school really tough for you? Because you must be getting fed up being told off every day. She goes, yeah, I don't like it. And it just needed someone just to unlock that. This is who I am. I've got this struggle. When I was younger, they looked explored, maybe ADHD stuff, whatever, but it didn't go anywhere. And now she just, there's no filter between brain and mouth. It just whatever she's thinking comes out. She can't control herself. She can't stop it. She doesn't mean to do it. But life is so hard for her. And I just gave her the opportunity to own own that struggle for a moment with a promise that I would raise it. I did do it today, actually, with other people in school to try and protect her from retribution because it's not going to help. You know, if someone can't stop it, then there's no point in punishing them every day because it won't make a difference. They're just going to slide back the next lesson. And I just wanted her. Sometimes I get I, I push students to try and own their struggles. If you're dyslexic, own it. Two girls today. I, I, I told them I'm so proud of them. Year 10. They can't, act, they can't copy off the board. They're dyslexic. And I wanted to get done an exam question. And, I, I was, and they asked me to write it for me. I've got, I had a TA in the room. So one, one, the TA wrote down for me one girl's book. And she brought said, bring the book to me and I'll write the question down for you. And I, I told the parents, your, your daughters are amazing. You know, they've owned it. Rather than, trying, rather than writing and not being able to read back their work and it's all chaotic. It's, they put their hands up. We can't do this. And no, no one else cares. Because everyone who, everyone who can do it can write a simple question in their book and it's no big deal but for the ones that can't see it remember it and write it down it's a big deal and i love the fact that they've got to that stage and that's what the simple one here and to try and it's, not, it's okay to own the struggle and to keep going with it um, and if young people can do it then for sure we can figure that out somehow in our heads and muna enabled the simple one just to be happy so he owned his challenge and was able to be happy he knew that if he had an apparent shortcoming it's because God created him that way. Why was to do that? To facilitate his soul correction and fulfillment of his mission in the sorely limited physical life on this earth. This is another fundamental thing that we that we buy and we understand. We've all got a mission, and the mission we have to play is our unique mission, and our abilities or lack of them, and everything else about our life enables us to do that job. It wouldn't be helpful, I guess, to have big thick fingers if your job was something very de delicate and uh, and it wouldn't help to have delicate fingers if you needed to be something else and we can recognize that and people uh, it, it doesn't work for to want what someone else has might be detrimental to you and to live with that and that's what this character represents for us in, our, in this story is I've got a mission I've got something that I have to do in this world and whatever God's given me with my struggles is actually perfect for me to do my mission. He therefore viewed his shortcoming, we're going to end with this paragraph, these paragraphs here, as perfection. Because I am perfectly suited to be me. And I love that concept. Now that doesn't mean that if you're doing something wrong, you can't try and fix yourself. 
or improve something or, or work on it. And fascinating, there are two models of self-improvement. Um, have any of you heard of the Clifton strengths? So check it out later, it's quite fascinating. Clifton, the, the Clifton model is different to other models. So no, other models, you look at your strengths and weaknesses and you work on what you can't do and you improve it. The Clifton model says, don't do that. It says, work out what your strengths are and make them better. So their, their, their approach is if you only work on what's not what you can't do, at the very most, you will be mediocre in what you can't do. But if you build on what you can do, you can be outstanding or excellent in the field that you're good at. And there's all these online quizzes, whatever you, wasn't, I think I paid during lockdown, I did it. <coughs> whatever it was, you, you get your top, you have to fill in all these types of quizzes, you first do this or that. I know they give you all these you know, irritating little statements. And you're like, I don't know, pick one. You have to like work out. Now it could be any, so you pick it and it gives you your top five of however many, whatever level of, of quiz you're going to do. And then the whole ideology is based on improving what you can do. So it's quite fascinating. But what you can't do is actually also a perfection. Another, another Jewish side. No, so, that, so one side is what you can't do, you've got to work on. Other side, work on what you're good at, because you'll make that even better. And then this side is saying, actually, you know, what you can't do is beautiful. No, forget it. God's given you that limitation because you don't need all those stuff. <coughs> to be you, you need other set of tools. And it doesn't matter that everyone else can make 25 layer kugels and carry out the oven and it's perfectly in a triangle. And it, you know, it's all these magazines that demand Jewish women, Orthodox women demented of what you've got to have on your Shabbos table. And, you know, different things. It's just, it's just, like, good for those people and everyone else can just eat. So this poor people... If you're nodding, I must be telling the truth. Right. I was just thinking how you wrote into magazines. I have, haven't I? I've complained about yeah, anonymously oh. sometimes. See, my, my journalist career started when I was a teenager, calling in on LBC radio to, um, you don't have to be Jewish. I went to a sports show and I knew nothing about football. And I spoke on these sports shows on a Monday for quite a while. Somehow, all you got to know is enough waffle. And keep going. Anyway, this limited, but I didn't have my limitations, clearly. Now, let's finish with this. Um, this poor, simple one was happy with his limited intellect and learning ability because for him, they were tools to help him accomplish his life's mission. The simple one was well aware that his slow brain and limited abilities would create difficulties in life for him. He had to work harder than anyone else. And still the product of his labours was inferior to that of all the other shoemakers. Remember, his wife said, charge more money, but I can't charge because it's like not such good stuff. He barely had time to eat. And at, when he did, his meal was just this the bread and water. Didn't even have his own, uh, own coat, and he shared it with his wife. Despite all his apparent hardships, he clung with steadfast to his amuna. Whatever his shortcomings he had were really gifts from Hashem for his ultimate benefit. His amunat was solidly steadfast that he could so love his three-pointed shoes, the symbol of his shortcomings. For him, shortcomings were his perfection. That's quite a... to see that, the challenges. Although, as someone said to us recently, you might have a certain, certain shortcoming that is, makes organising yourself and focusing complicated, but if the train's leaving at half past ten, I don't care, you can't pack a suitcase. If you end up getting there at ten thirty, one and a half, your train's gone. Yeah. So whatever your short something there, there is shortcomings, but you've got to also then work out how to slot yourself into the actual world, 
But to do that doesn't necessitate being grumpy and miserable, but you can appreciate. So that's part that's where we're up to with our story. What's coming next? A little trailer for next time. We didn't quite finish everything. Um, how we should think about... There's two levels. There's before we try to achieve something, we can put in certain efforts and certain ideology. And then after we try, and then if it doesn't quite go the way we want it to go, accept that is what Hashem wants to do. So you can set out to achieve something. It's not Achieving isn't the enemy here, but it's how we reflect afterwards. And then linking also to our mitzvah performance, happiness from imperfection from the way we practice our Judaism, because it's all, everything we do is beautiful, even if it's not perfect and part of who we are in our story. But please God, we will continue this odyssey next time.